Welcome to the e-commerce podcast with Matt Edmondson, a show that brings you regular interviews, tips and tools for building your business online. Well, hello and welcome to the e-commerce podcast with me, Matt Edmondson. Uh, this show is a podcast dedicated for all of those who are in e-commerce, who have an e-commerce business, who want to do e-commerce in some way, format, shape or other. Uh, and it's all, all designed to help us get better at running our e-commerce businesses. So welcome, my fellow e-commercers, uh, if that makes any sense at all. Uh, it's great to have you with us. Uh, tonight, we have a very special guest, Neil Roberts, who is the product director from Moo.com. Uh, and if you, you'll know what Moo.com is if you haven't. Where have you been? Uh, but Neil was also the product director for Eurostar. So, you know, some big names following uh, Neil around. So it's going to be great to have him on the show. And we are going to get into customer service, customer focus. We are going to talk about what agile sprints are, how all kinds of stuff. We're going to get into all kinds of stuff. It's going to be really fascinating. I'm really, really looking forward to this one, let me tell you. So uh, Neil will be along in just a minute or two. Uh, if you are watching on Facebook as we record this interview, uh, give us a wave, say hello. It's great to see you. Uh, great that you are here uh, and enjoying the broadcast. Uh, if you are listening to the show on uh, your podcast app of choice, uh, whether that's through Apple or other, there are, of course, other makes of mobile phones, um, whether you're in the car, on the train, in the bus, walking around the park, if lock, lockdown is still carrying on, wherever you are listening to your podcast, it's also great to have you as well. Uh, make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from as we put out weekly content uh, all about how to set up and run and grow and develop your own e-commerce business. And uh, if you don't know already, if it's the first time to the show, well, welcome. It's great to have you here. Uh, but if you don't know already, we also broadcast live over Facebook on Facebook Live uh, when we record the interview with our special guest, which is just fantastic um, because we get comments and interaction, which I really, really like. So it's great uh, to do that. And if you would like to watch the future interviews with guests that we have on the show, then make sure you check out uh, our Facebook Live page. Make sure you go to mattedmondson.com and subscribe to the podcast because we will let you know when podcast recordings are happening live on Facebook via email. We put the notices out on social media. So if you're connected with us, you will know when they're going to happen. Uh, and hopefully you can come join us, join in the conversation, which is always great to do. Okay, so uh, at the time of recording, we are still, uh, we're just about to enter June, actually. So um, uh, lockdown is still going on. COVID is still very much on the lips of people. Uh, and e-commerce is very much in high demand. Uh, and you know what? It's, it's, I've seen this in my own e-commerce businesses. I've been talking to other e-commerce business owners. I was talking to one guy today. Uh, their demand is shot through the roof, let me tell you, over the last few weeks uh, for their products. Um, and a lot of e-commerce companies are seeing double, triple growth figures at the moment. 
Some are seeing 20% increases year on year, 30%, whatever it is. E-commerce is a great business to, or it's a great way to service your business at the moment, having an e-commerce outlet. And if you are in the market for a new e-commerce platform, a new e-commerce website, you are you know, wanting to know which way to turn, which way to go, then make sure you check out this week's show sponsor, Curious.Digital, an e-commerce platform developed and designed, or designed and developed, let's get it the right way around, uh, by e-commerce entrepreneurs uh, and e-commerce business owners. It has been tested and designed in the field, let me tell you. It is based on uh, lots and lots of inputs across lots and lots of industries and lots and lots of businesses, uh, and it is a great platform. And Curious.Digital has a great starter package if you're new out to e-commerce, um, and you can get a really great platform to start your business on with all the essentials that you need. And the really amazing thing is with Curious Digital is you never need to upgrade your platform because as your business grows and expands, the platform will grow and expand with you. It's not like it's just a software as service type thing where you're given it and that's it. This is an agency back piece of software. So for that 5% of the time you need an agency to help you and develop it specific to your business needs, Curious Digital does that. So make sure you check them out at www.curious.digital and tell them Matt sent you because they are an amazing platform. It is a platform that I do use. The other company, the other show sponsor that you should definitely check out is Lightbulb Agency. These guys are an end-to-end e-commerce services business and they basically do all of those parts of e-commerce that you don't want to do or that you don't have the skills to do. Um, and so, you know, for example, we've, uh, we, I know people that don't want to do their fulfillment. They just don't. They just want to focus on marketing their website. Um, and they could care less in some respects about fulfillment. So guess what? Lightbulb does that for them. On the other hand, there's people that go, you know what? We can do our own fulfillment because we, we're, we're okay at that, but we want someone to do our marketing. Well, Lightbulb can do that and so on and so forth. So uh, if there's an aspect of e-commerce that you need help with that you're not sure about, make sure you talk to the guys over at Lightbulb Agency. Again, tell them that Matt sent you. You've been listening to the e-commerce show uh, and have a little listen. Now, Uh, For those of you who have been long-time listeners to the show, you will know we have actually, on the sly, you you may have picked this up, subtly changed the name of the podcast. It is no longer called the Curiosity Podcast. We just call it E-Commerce Podcast with Matt Edmondson. It's a bit more kind of does what it says on the tin type thing. Do you know what I mean? Uh, And there's no real reason for the brand change other than it's just a little bit clearer on what it is, um, the Curiosity Podcast, especially when we spelt it with a K um, and a shout out to Curious Digital, our sponsor. People didn't didn't really get that, um, and so so we've changed the name e-commerce podcast with Matt Edmondson. We are now in season three, believe it or not, and so it is amazing to be here uh, with you, chatting with you, and uh, let me tell you about tonight's guest on the show. So we have Neil Roberts, um, and Neil has spent most of the last decade with Eurostar. If you don't know who Eurostar is, basically it's a train company that takes you from London to Paris through the Channel Tunnel. Uh, one simple train journey. Amazing. Um, and so he spent the last decade with Eurostar creating digital strategy that builds a great customer experience. So he's got a wealth of experience in digital and building customer experience on digital. He has subsequently moved to Mood.com, helping them scale their ambition to bring great design to everyone. And Mood.com is a great website if you're looking for things like stationary business cards, basically print-on-demand type stuff. Um, 
Uh, I've got some business cards, actually. Uh, I should have bought them to show you. That was a bit remiss of me, but I'm at home. I'm under lockdown. And the business cards have Seth Godin quotes on the back, which I love, and my details on the front, all from Moo. They do all that sort of stuff, take care of all that design. So without further ado, I'm going to bring in Neil, and this is technically take two because, you know, on Monday we tried to do this and technology totally failed. So, uh, Neil, welcome to the show. Thank you for being flexible and coming back, and hopefully the technology will work and function for us this time. Fingers crossed. <laughs> that is a sign of a great coder, a man who knows technical. Let's just cross our fingers and hope because we just genuinely don't know. <laughs> I haven't started praying yet. It's just fingers crossed. <laughs> Prayer is phase two. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> DEFCON three. <laughs> Excellent. How are you doing, Neil? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. How are you finding um, the lockdown? Um. I guess like most people, ups and downs. It's kind of it's nice to spend a bit of time at home with the family, and then sometimes it's not so nice to spend some time at home with the family. Um, <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Um, so you know, there, there's plenty to be grateful for. Um, everyone's well and healthy, so I can't really complain. No, I mean that you know we everyone complains about something, don't they? But ultimately, you're right. I'm at home. I'm with the family. We've not killed each other yet. The kids are still talking to me. They're fit. They're well. We're getting on. It's there's a lot to be thankful for, which I am. You know, very thankful. Uh, so, I know this isn't in the script, but it's just a question in my head. How do you think business is going to change for Moo post sort of COVID? Do you think do you think it will all return for you guys back to normal, or do you think things will move on a little bit? I think, as with any business, it will move on. Um, I think we're very fortunate in that I suppose being a very technology led business moving to working remotely um, was actually pretty smooth it was sort of 20 24 hours um, and we had the right infrastructure in place to, to do that and it had been something that the, the business has inspired to do because we have offices in the UK and the US um, so we're, we're a bit disparate anyway so you a great user of um, different video conferencing tools. <clears throat> so so you, that was, you, you're already partially down this road, and it was yeah. And yeah. um, everything runs off, you know, Google Docs. Um, there are other online. <laughs> Just to um, say, there are other online companies, but we use Google Docs as well. Yeah, yeah. and, and, Slack. It, and uh, yeah, <laughs> pardon. And Slack, Google Docs, and Slack. Everything happens in those two environments. Yeah. And and I think. So I think it will just, it, it's accelerated that kind of transition for us. Uh, we were already using, you know, other tools like uh, we use Miro, which is a sort of group facilitation whiteboarding tool. So you can do okay. things like that. Um, and uh, again, there's other tools like Mural and a few others in that space, which are, are pretty new and exciting because you can do things that often historically would have been, you have to be in the same space. You mm -hmm. can do much more readily um, with everybody disparate. So I think all of that is going to change, and I think we, we will become more more accepted um, to do that. Um, and I think people will be a lot more familiar with it. And what I hear in other businesses is um, who weren't perhaps as 
um, far forward in the technology, they've had to adopt it. So I think there's going to be a much broader adopt of, uh, adopting of those kind of, I suppose, being able to work remotely or work from home much more regularly or being completely remote. There's lots of um, jobs that I'm seeing advertised at the moment, which is sort of saying completely remote. Yeah. So that, that mental shift has really been accelerated. Mm. Um, and then I think, I guess we were we were predominantly an online business anyway, so I think that's just more of the same. Um, and I'm sure there'll be you know a, a shift in the product mix as there often is. But so we'll, yeah. we we shall see. We shall wait and see, as they say. Did you work from home a lot anyway before this, or is you more of an office guy? Um, I think more at Moo than I did at Eurostar. Um, so it's sort of the, and I think that was a as a cultural thing because. Um, it was more, I suppose, just just accepted. It was the norm. Yeah. To do that. But um, probably regularly one day a week, mm-hmm. uh, occasionally two days a week, but probably not more than that. So it'll be interesting to see if that tips. You know, we've got friends that even before COVID were working from home, um, either permanently or, um, you know, three or four days a week. Yeah. Uh, mainly coders. Mm-hmm that tend to get away with that <laughs> well they actually uh, prefer to be just head down and focused in don't they and they don't want yeah. the distraction of the office i think one of the things that um i don't think i've solved yet but is one of the questions sort of in the back of my mind is i get that people are going to work more from home and we have sort of an open plan office um and you know it's it's, it's actually quite a nice working environment and one of the things that i love about our office um is we would often have what um, I don't know where I've picked this term up, but the water cooler moments, do you know what I mean? Where you would, you, where you would go, you'd make a cup of tea, you'd turn the kettle on and you would just get talking to one of your coworkers um, and an idea would form. It wasn't a planned meeting. It was a spontaneous thing and something would happen, that magic, yeah. that spark, or even just a simple, Hey, how are you, how are you? Do you know what I mean? How are you doing? Because when we're on zoom all the time, it just tends to be business. It's not, Hey, how are you doing? Do you know what I mean? And so I'm curious to see how how we keep that aspect of 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 work in a remote setting, if that makes sense. I don't know if you've got any experience on that. Yeah, I was, I was listening to a podcast the other week while I was going for for a ride, and they were talking about exactly this. It was a um, uh, what was it? Mind the product, I think, yeah. was the, the the podcast, and they had a, a, a facilitation coach on an agile coach. And she was talking about how to build communities and build communities remotely. Um, and they were talking about, yeah, because you don't have those accidental interactions, how mm-hmm. to recreate it. And I think it's one of those things that's perhaps slightly more foreign is how to have a, a social conversation. Um, and what they talked about is when you're running a session, um, actually thinking about structuring so that you have an introduction. So not icebreakers as in some of the crazy games that you can do. But if the you were ice- an animal, which one would you be? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so not those, um, but more um, giving everybody in the group an opportunity to introduce themselves and talk about what they want to get out of that meeting or session. Yeah. Um, and then intermittently having different sort of icebreakers, which like get get something from the house that is a fridge magnet was the example that they used because often if you have them they tell a story and you can get to know the person a bit more that's a great idea and that was called mind the product i might have a little listen to that yeah yeah mind the product so they do a whole series of product based and around agile and agile coaching so they do 
events and um, conferences, a lot of online content. Um, and yeah, they're really good. Um, That'd be really interesting. It's around the facilitation stuff. Yeah. No, I'll have a listen to that. I'll have a thing because that, that fascinates me. Because one of the things I think is going to happen with this online working is actually because we are more now willing to have remote workers, it, it means actually, I mean, we talked to in the last podcast to Jesse about this, about how he's an American who lives in the Philippines, but his office, is, his team are basically all over the world. And this is now starting to become much more the norm. And so you're getting access to um, a much different, type of person by being a remote working organization you're sort of opening up the doors from the geographical sense um, i mean we're based in liverpool and one of the things that you know liverpool's got a great digital culture but man do you have to pay the developers a lot of money if you want the good ones do you yeah. know what i mean and it and actually all of a sudden this sort of flings the door open and it makes it makes what you do accessible to a whole bunch more people yeah i think it, i think it does and i think so, I mean, I live down in Kent, so and I, I worked in in a regional business as well. So I felt the challenges of of trying to build teams that are in regional locations, and it, it it can be difficult if you don't have, I suppose, a network of businesses around you with a similar skill. So when you're in a city, you you've often got lots of businesses that can help. You can borrow people problem and that sort of stuff but when you're more regional it's much harder but yeah remote working makes a big difference yeah um yeah, so you expertise irrespective of, of where you are so yeah. it should make a big difference to a lot of businesses and maybe a less focus on the cities which which can't be a bad thing no and yeah i, I say knowing yes follow that doesn't make any sense as in the side i just heard that back in my head what are you talking about uh but i i think you're right i think i'm, I'm really cute like i say i'm really curious to see where all this plays out and uh, so I thank you for the wisdom of that podcast and I will share it. And I'll, I like those ideas. Um, really, really intriguing at the moment, uh, how it's all going to play out. So, Neil, you uh, mentioned and I've mentioned that you work for Moo. Just tell everybody. I mean, I gave a brief intro to what it is, but what is Moo? Moo.com. You're in the UK, you're in the States. But what is it for those that don't know? Yeah, so Moo is about 13 years old, um, and it was one of the original startups around Silicon Roundabout, you know, Old Street. So, you know, that in, in a single office with a, a big printer downstairs. I like, um, by the way, how in the UK we have Silicon Roundabout, <laughs> and in the States they have a whole valley, which is a roundabout. And, <laughs> and if the Americans listening to the show right now are going, What's a roundabout? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, mind-boggling. But there's a small area within London where the sort of the startup scene was 13, 13 odd years ago, and Richard founded the business. And it was, um, it was basically small uh, business cards uh, with a unique shape. Um, he partnered with Flickr. Um, and you could put your image uh, on the back of the cards, and you can have different images on the different back of the back of the cards. Um, and it was really popular within what we call the Soho community, so small office, home office, yeah. and particularly with artists and photographers because they could use the business cards as a as a portfolio. And out of that's grown a business card and marketing material. So everything that is is print based, really. Um, still, business cards is a core part of the business, but we do, you know, leaflets 
and notebooks and all that sort of stuff, but always with uh, a focus on the quality of design and the quality of materials. So we do a great uh, luxe line, which is actually a number of pieces of card that are laminated with a, a seam around it, mm. and it makes it a really tactile and noteworthy product, so people actually comment on yeah. it. Um, and all delivered through an, an online platform, so you can design your own or use some of our templates that we've we built for you and adopt, adapt them. So the idea is that you can democratize good design. So design, yeah, I struggled with that. That's fine. <laughs> but, <laughs> I would too. But, uh, so that it's more accessible. So if yeah. you're a small business and you don't have the print, uh, print expertise or the design expertise, that we can make that accessible and you can customize it so that you can, I suppose, be true to the business that you're trying to build and get access to skills that yeah. you wouldn't have. Um, and it's it's great. No, it is. And I, I I said at the start that I've actually I'm a customer of Moo, and I I I I have to be honest. These days, I really rarely give out business cards. Um, it's just a different world, isn't it? When I first started in business, every man and his dog said, "You what should give me a business card," but people just don't do that anymore. Um, but the business cards that I got with the Seth Godin quotes on there, they're the ones which everybody commented on. Yeah. The, they they became a talking point and people almost put them up on the wall. Do you know what I mean? Because they liked the quote on the back. And so um, I, I, I think what you guys do is great. I am a customer, uh, just, you know, full disclosure. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm not being paid to say that. <laughs> no, I'm similar. I've still got business cards from a business that I was working in 10 years ago, stuck mm -hmm. in a drawer, um, because I was so proud and loved them so much <laughs> they're hard to throw out aren't they I, they're hard they are. to throw out it's really bizarre uh yeah. even when they become outdated they're hard to throw out i get that it's just it's a strange 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 thing so what's your so that's what moo does but what's your role at moo i use the phrase product director but what is a product director a very good question um <laughs> i was still trying to find out the answer <laughs> well i think it, it's 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 very much um it's Defining the what and the why of, of what you should build or how you could Im improve, uh, you can have it in the physical product world. So, you know, business cards, for example, or cycle helmets, there will be a product person defining what that product should be and what the proposition should be. And in the software world, uh, as it often does, it's it's adopted or borrowed or stolen, that, that terminology. Um, and it's really trying to work out what is the, what's for the software product, what is it you need to build and why do you need to build it? Mm -hmm. um, and it's, you're quite often the middle person sort of working with the engineering teams and working with the business part, the commercial part of the business and the UX and designers and bringing everybody together um, to get a consensus or at least a, a joined up strategy of, of what you should be delivering and why. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's, that's what I do. So work very closely with, the designers and the user experience and user researcher people, researching people to understand what the customer needs are um, and looking at the existing product and working with the analysts mm. to, to see how that's performing and looking for opportunities to, to make it better. Yeah. Um, and that, that's, yeah, but that's what I mind well, that, do. That bit. sounds fascinating. Um, <clears throat> I like that phrase, the what and the why, trying to understand yeah. what and why. Um, what are some of the things then working at Moo that maybe have surprised you that you've discovered? Um, sounds really cheesy, but just how nice the people are. Um, <laughs> we like cheese, cheese, cheese works. Yeah. But genuinely Richard's, you know, built a culture there where, um, 
you know, it's just a, a really positive culture. So really uh, investing in people and, you know, help focusing on how they work together and making a pleasant working environment. And, and the, I suppose the bit that I'm really fascinated as, as well as that is, is the physical product. So in the middle of the London office is where the, the real product people are. The, the real the product people. <laughs> as in, you know, but like they, I they know what you mean, yeah. You can touch. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you've got all of the, the materials everywhere. Um, and they've got all these little prototypes that they put together and are, are testing with people. Um, and I think that that was just, that was a new thing for me to see I suppose the more traditional product design and development process and be able to see it in the heart of the office. Yeah. And when you talk to them, it's utterly fascinating and how they go in and the effort they go into research materials and manufacturers, you know, looking at how can we make something, you know, uh, with less or no plastic and make things out of hemp or mm-hmm. as they did a few years ago, out of recycled t-shirt cotton t-shirts so how they could use the remnants from cuts out of t-shirts refactor them into into business cards and other materials and it's just i think that's what surprised me is the depth of thought that goes into all sorts of things even even the notebooks and so the notebooks so you look at this Mm. and when they opened it you can see the spine comes off Mm. um and this is all sort of stitched along the side but that's so that when you open it and write on it it's flat and you don't get that crease oh, okay. on them. And the attention to detail, uh, it's you know, extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary. So I think it's that. I'm that gonna have I have to try one of those notebooks. I'm a, I am a bit of a pen and notebook fan. I have to be yeah. honest. And, um, I, I can't pronounce, I don't know how I pronounce the brand of my notebook. Leichtenstein. I'm really sorry that I've gone and butchered that brand. Um, uh, but I've, I, I I've tried very many different notebooks. So if you've got a great notebook, I'll definitely be trying one because you know that a good notebook is essential. I think. To I, any, yeah. Any career. yeah. <laughs> a good pen and a good notebook. You know, why would you not have one? Um. So, how long have you been with Moon now? Um, I think just shy of two years. Okay. So do you feel like you're still new in the post, or do you feel like you're you, you kind of established? I think getting more established, I think it's the nature of sort of a younger a younger business and a business that's growing and things change all the time. So it's definitely, it's not boring. Um, <laughs> These things never are. Really. One of the things that you said actually in our pre-call that I've written down in my notes here, and I, I would love for you to expand on it further because it really piqued my interest. Now, this is obviously an e-commerce show, an e-commerce podcast, um, and Moo has an e-commerce site. They do, um, yeah. And that's how you generate your business, right? Um, and you, you said, uh, people don't come to us because of the e-commerce experience, but because of our physical product. In other words, they come to the site because they want to buy the physical product, not because of the e-commerce experience, but they couldn't get the product without having the e-commerce experience. Yeah. Um, and I thought that were very wise words and I thought that was a really interesting tension. So how do you, how do you balance that? Um, I think it's an ongoing balancing act. And I think for, for, Sort of on the digital product side of things, it is um, you have to put. I, I suppose understand the, the the what your customers are after. So if you're truly customer led, it does mean perhaps that you recognise where your position is in the in the pecking order of, of their desires. Is um, they come for the physical product, and uh, my role there then in 
is to to make it easy to understand and access that product and almost get out of their way yeah. so I have the, I suppose, benefit of working with a great product, physical product business, but I have the, the risk that if I get it wrong, I can actually devalue the whole brand experience. Mm. So, for example, if it's really difficult to find stuff, then um, people will get frustrated or if they yeah. can't, or if the, the site doesn't work, then it can actually be damaging to the brand and particularly a company like Moo that positions itself in the quality and the design aspects of it, there we have to live up to the brand in the e-commerce side of mm. things. Um, we couldn't do, you know, a really, you know, ugly site, for example, because it wouldn't fit with a brand. And if it doesn't work and if it isn't, if it isn't smooth, then, you know, customers let us know. Yeah. Um, they, they expect a standard that is equivalent to the, the quality that they get in the, in the business cards and the notebooks. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just knowing why people come there. Um, I think if I was working for Spotify, you know, that is, well, even there, actually, they come for the media. But yeah, they come for the music. Yeah. Or the podcasts, uh, obviously, if you're listening to this on Spotify. But there's also, there's a, so there's a real opportunity to help the business grow by getting that experience right. And, yeah. But it is not everything. And if you look at Netflix, Amazon, um, and all the sort of predecessors that were in the, the sort of streaming section, there is a reason that Netflix is the biggest, yeah. <clears throat> is actually the user interface is, I feel, more elegant. Oh, it's um, unbelievable. Yeah, it's chalk and cheese, isn't it? Yeah, but also they have the right, content and the right volume of content so you need both um, so you need this sort of great product um, <clears throat> but you need a, a mechanism to demonstrate that product in a way which is almost out of the way i think was a phrase you use you sort of you want to get out of the customer's way make it easy for them to understand the product um and you for me that if i'm understanding you right neil for me that is about design on the site matching up to the design of the actual products obviously you you can't have an incoherent or an incongruous sort of website and physical product. Um, but also making that experience seamless. And I think that's a great sort of description, um, you know, when we're thinking about our e-commerce websites is actually, it's not about the website. It's about the products that people are buying. And the website is secondary to that in some respects and needs to make the whole process of getting that product um, congruous. And, but it also needs to be almost invisible. Yeah, and it's the balance between... Um, aesthetic and function. Yeah. One of the examples I always use is um, corkscrews. So there are, I think, probably a million designs of corkscrews. I think I probably got half of those in my kitchen, to be fair. But there's probably two go-tos. So yeah. there's one which is the waiter's friend, which is that small one that folds up that all the way. Yeah, yeah. It has the foil cutter and everything, and mm -hmm. it just works. And then the other one I like is the one with the arms that you can mm -hmm. sort of you screw it down and then do that. And the lady in the dress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you can have the most beautiful and elegant looking product, but if it doesn't perform the function you purchased it for, it stays in the drawer and you never use it. Yeah. And the website's the same. So as that as a product, its job is to present the product and get you through that journey to take your money um, as efficiently and effectively as, as, as possible. Um, and so that's the purpose. So you need to balance the aesthetic with the function. And if we don't get the function right, it doesn't matter what it looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the same in the physical product experience as it is in the customer experience. If you don't get that base reason that customers come to you right, 
it doesn't matter what else you do. You can't, you can't really recover it. Um, no, that's great. That's great. So, um, I think that's very good advice for anybody running an e-commerce business is to, uh, to understand the purpose of the e-commerce website, um, in relation to the actual products you're selling, whether they're physical products or digital products, people ultimately are there to buy the product. They're not there to experience the e-commerce website, yeah. um, but they have to, to get the product. And I, I like that way of thinking. Um, again, in our pre-call, we talked about how at Moo you have um, quite a strong agile culture in terms of this development and growing things and, and moving things forward. Um, but again, you made, well, hang on, before I get into that quote, because I thought it was a great quote, and I'm going to pull it up in a second. Let's just explain to the listeners uh, what Agile is, if in, just in case they don't know, and why it was part of the culture at Moon. Yeah. So there, there are multiple ways of building software. Um, the more traditional one is something called um, Waterfall, which is a sort of phased project management process. So you'll define the product, you'll scope it out. Um, you know, probably the best analogy is to think of if you're building a house. So talk to an architect and a draftsman and they will build up the blueprints. Um, and you talk about where the rooms are going to go and where the toilet will be and all that sort of stuff. And then you progress on to, you lock that down and that's rigid. Um, and then you lock down and you give it over to the builders and they go and build it against the the plans that's kind of and you can do that same process with software and lots of software projects still work in exactly that same way which i think works really well when you know the outcome that you're going for so if you know that then it's going to be you know four bedrooms and you know how much you're going to spend um the challenge in that way of building software and actually in the same way of building houses is at the start of the project is when you know the least <clears throat> so working out um how much it's going to cost, what the labor costs are going to be is extraordinarily difficult. Um, and invariably what happens is you go through the process that you find something that was unforeseen that you didn't expect. Something's a bit difficult. Yep. With, with our house, we found that the previous guy had done the plumbing and the toilet and he hadn't done it particularly well. And it was eroding the corner of the house. Oh, that's not good. Not good. But you know, we couldn't not, once we found that we couldn't not deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so you have, <laughs> you could, yeah, fix that. We could, but yeah, you know, I'd be, I wouldn't be sat here now, <laughs> in it. Um, and the same happens with software projects. Mm. Um, and so agile is, uh, so waterfall works. And I think there's, you know, if you look at some of the project management philosophies, like Prince Two, which is one of the more, um, I suppose, document-heavy, process-heavy, yeah. it has its place. So if you're building um, a military um, aircraft, you probably want that rigor to make sure that it works um, well because the, the risks, the consequences of it not working are you know, life-threatening. Yeah. Um, but then if you move into something where the, perhaps the risk is lower, but also where the outcome is um, less certain. So if you're trying to solve them, um, and so, you know, put it Netflix, for example, there's an example. So they originally, I remember, went in to pitch, or the urban myth is they went to pitch to blockbusters. Yeah. And 
what about this live streaming thing? They probably at that stage had no idea how to use the technology, what the user interface was going to be, um, how to get traction with people, whether people would actually develop it. So the outcome of what they were building was very uncertain of how they were going to do it, but the vision was there. Um, and Agile works with that because you're, it's, a, it's an iterative process. It has different methodologies you can use. So one of them is Scrum. Um, and that under that process, you, you go into week sprints or short sprints and you take a small module and you build it and then you push it out and you test it with real customers. And you can do prototyping before, but the idea is you take a small iteration rather than spending 12 months yeah. building the amazing piece and then testing it. You de-risk the project by doing a small increment, putting it to market. Does it work? If it works, you keep it. If if it doesn't work, you get rid of it and you go for the next iteration. Yeah. So it's this constant learning process. Yeah, yeah. So when you're not clear on the outcome, it's a better, faster, cheaper actually way of, of finding what works. Um, and that's kind of where it's it's born out of. So a lot of, of Silicon Valley and software companies trying to build and iterate and learn and evolve their product rather than having a big vision and yeah. spending two years building it and then you put it to market and no one wants it. No, yeah. <laughs> No one understands it, no one gets it. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So that's Agile. And the thing that you said, that the quote that I loved was, Agile is great where you're, and you've, you've actually just said it a little bit again, Agile is great where you're breaking new ground, otherwise waterfall works really well. Yeah. And it's, yeah, and it's it, kind of, I guess, understanding which one is where you're at. Yeah, and there's a guy, I, didn't, I don't know if I mentioned this before, there's a guy called uh, Dave Snowden. He's an academic. Yeah. And he has a process called Kenevin. It's a Welsh word, so it's spelt differently to, I would say it, but Kenevin. Um, I can't spell it, but it begins with a C. But if you Google Dave Snowden, he's, he's, um, he's the thought leader on that piece. And it looks at, it's a decision-making model. So it looks at the problem you're trying to solve. Is it simple and well understood? And therefore, then there's probably a process that will allow you to do that efficiently. Yeah. And if it's complex and not well understood, then actually you probably want to lean towards something like Agile because it will allow you to evolve and learn. Um, and in time, when that space is is well understood, maybe it will move to something where a process is would optimize what you what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's. Five, six, seven years ago, I spent a lot of my time being told Agile is the thing. We all need to be Agile. We need to do that stuff. And just blindly taking a methodology and applying it to your circumstance, your organization, I don't think really, really works. So yeah, you just it need to really make sense, did it? Yeah. No. And we were part of that, actually. Part of that story is like everybody was Agile. Um, everybody yeah. read the book Scrum. Everyone's like, oh, now we need to be Scrum. We need to be Agile. We need to do this. We need to do that. And it's like, goodness me. And you had to work, you then had to go and get a consultant in to explain what all the different terminologies meant because they, they, they renamed absolutely everything. Yeah. And, um, and so you're right. It's, I, but I thought this was a really good um, breakdown. It's like, should I be agile? Yes or no. And I liked your phrase. If you're breaking into new ground, look at agile. Otherwise, don't reinvent the wheel. You don't need to just go with a well-documented process, you know, learn from what other people have said. Funnily enough here, Sean's written in the Facebook comments, um, God, I have a headache. The more I learn, the more questions I have. <laughs> and I think, you know what? That's my life every day, Sean, to be fair, <laughs> when it comes to digital. That is life, isn't it? Yeah. It's kind of... <laughs>
there's a book I kind of I think it's called Mindset. Um, it talks about grind, growth mindset and fixed mindset, and the concept is that you can learn most things. Um, but you know, depending on your intelligence level and your ability, it might take you a bit longer. But the brain and the body does evolve, so you can learn stuff. So, you know, I think if you want to, you can learn till till you go to the grave, new things, new ideas, put them together, and more stuff. And it and yeah, we're always going to be learning. I think that's interesting, isn't it? We are. As long as, and I don't think this is what you mean, I, as long as it's not that case of, uh, I see this all the time, people spend all their life learning and no, hardly any time doing. Do, yeah. do you know what I mean? Do you know the kind of people that I mean. Uh, I in do. fact, if you're listening to this, you will all know the kind of person that I mean. They spend all their time <laughs> learning and never any time doing, and there has to be that balance. Um, so moving on, you've got Agile, uh, this sort of Agile culture, and you said... Um, when we talked last time, you employed, you called it the Spotify model at Moo. You had this Spotify model. What do you mean by that? So the, the Spotify model is, um, I think, in essence, it was a concept that's probably six or seven years ago, which was popularized by Spotify as the way that they were looking at their organizational design at the time. Um, and what they were trying to do is... Uh, scale their, the, the product development so they could have multiple streams of work. Um, and it was kind of a matrix structure. So you had different crews or squads, and they were you'd have, the idea was each one of those units would be autonomous. Yeah. So they had the ability to understand the problem they were trying to fix, and they had all the resources they needed to actually then go and fix it and put it into market. So they'd have a, a designer, a UX person, an engineers, front-end, back-end, QAs, testers, that sort of stuff. There's about eight people, yeah. wasn't there, in a, in a particular group? They were There's quite small groups, weren't yeah. they? They weren't massive. No larger than two pizzas is the sort of the phrase that comes out, you know, yeah. the number of people that you could feed with two, two pizzas. pizzas. <laughs> if you get them from asda or dominoes but anyway it's um so it's this it's a sort of the small groups um and they uh they're, they're each group is autonomous and they they have a very clear problem which they're trying to solve or a very clear thing that they're working on don't they yeah so you might have someone who for example is is focused on focus on that of a new software product, you have someone who focuses as you get transaction really smooth and clean and focus on different payment providers to make sure that the transactions are successful more often and for prevention and all that sort of stuff. So each area, each team and have its own mission and part of the application that um, it, it could focus on and, and make that part of the experience. So the idea is then is that you can scale up that organization um, much more readily as your business grows or your application grows. Um, and then they have a kind of matrix structure across it, which is looking at guilds and chapters, and that's to share the learning learnings between the different um, specialisms and the different teams. So you kind of end up with this sort of matrix structure. Um, and, yeah, that, that was what Moo had until very recently. So we tried to adopt that. Okay, but you guys have <laughs> moved away from that. Yeah, and, and as I believe Spotify have as well. Yeah. So um, what have you found that 
worked well for you guys and maybe what didn't work as well? Yeah, I think there's more to just the way you organize your people to actually making agile work. Um, and I found this with Eurostar. So Eurostar, we had a couple of replatforming projects in the time I was there. And where it works was on the third, third time where we built the software in the right way. Um, so it was in components. Um, it was a train company, so we used to use the language of it, it, components that were loosely coupled, like a train, so you carriages in a train. So they know how to work together, but if you want to take one out and replace it with something new, you can. Um, that's important to give the teams autonomy, so they need to be able to work on their level part of the application without negatively impacting other people. So you need the software to be built in, in the right way, and then the organization reflects it. Um, and what moves, some of the moves has some challenges is the software isn't universally built in the right way. Mm. So it may, you have teams that were set up to, to work um, autonomously, but actually they couldn't work on a discrete piece of the code base without negatively in fact impacting multiple teams, which yep. increased the sort of coordination and communication overhead of doing it. So that was one of the challenges that, that we had, probably the biggest challenge um, because the, the software wasn't as elegantly designed. It had evolved with the business as, as it had grown. Um, so that, that was a real challenge for us. So you kind of almost had a negative effect that we were, with the intention of creating autonomous, autonomous teams, we'd created an environment where they had to spend a lot of time talking and liaising between each other, increasing the overhead of doing that. Um, <clears throat> but one of the benefits that we had, I think, was the, the chapters and the guilds, so the learning, continuous learning between those those teams, and particularly the agile chapter, which are a great facilitator for, for that. Um, so the learning culture was was really, uh, really good. And, uh, you know, that kind of, so we differentiate. So a chapter, as I understand it, um, is where you have, say, a group of product managers. And the idea is that they're trying to learn from each other's experiences and share learning to improve how they do product management as a group. And you'll have this with front-end engineers or designers, yeah. UX people, so they're doing that. And a guild is is more open than that. So anyone that has an interest in perhaps usability can come and join. So if you were in the sales team, but you were curious about how it worked, you could be part of a guild. Or the way that we used it in the wider organization, so we might have um, things around the, the culture, around diversity. So we would have a guild around diversity. And it was just uh, a group of people that were interested in um, improving the diversity and culture in the business, and they would pull, to, pull together to learn and implement initiatives across across the business and improve yeah. stuff. Wow. Um, so that, that, that was really positive. And I think when you're in a business that is growing, yeah. then, really useful uh, ways to organize yourself to share learning and and speed up the learning so that everybody grows um at the same kind of grows with the company don't they and people aren't getting left behind <laughs> how many people work at moon um around 600 oh wow so it's a pretty sizable i don't even know what that means but it's a pretty <laughs> sizable organization so you need um you can see why that would work really well for for you guys definitely yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's move uh, on to um, uh, the sort of the customer focus aspect of, of life, Neil, if we can. Um, and th 
sort of talk about that side of things. And again, one of the phrases that you used in our pre-podcast call, which you kept using, which I quite like, and I've heard it before, is this whole surprise and delight idea um, that customer focus, surprise and delights. What do you mean by that? Or what do you think is meant by that is maybe a better question. Yeah. So when I was at Eurostar, that's where that phrase was used most often. So I spent a lot of time... um, working with the, the, the physical customer experience and the customer experience team. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- that was a phrase that was used quite a lot. So the idea is that you, customer ex- in, within customer experiences, we should be surprising our customers and giving them a delightful experience. Um, and what it, I think where the risk of using that and focusing on that, so for example, if you give people with, with a free cup of tea or some sunglasses or whatever, they might initially be quite delighted. So there's some Eurostar glasses that actually my kids have still got <laughs> bright yellow and, and, and they were great. Yeah. People were generally delighted and they, they, they hang around, but actually they weren't going to build loyalty. They weren't going to get someone to book another trip. Um, yeah, they said, okay, that's nice. That's cool. Yeah, that's, that's cool. Um, and, um, and so what? Yeah, yeah. So what? And so the, if you look into customer experience in a broader thing and the sort of processes and, and thoughts around how that works, is it, it's a, a pyramid. And right at the top of the pyramid is the surprise and delight mm-hmm. uh, sorts of things to add that extra, you know, touch. Yeah. Uh, and there are, in the hotel industry, they talk about the, it's the last experience, which can be your lasting experience. Um, so it's how you, the, the doorman says goodbye to you and opens your door and that sort of stuff. But they're right at the top. Yeah. But if you don't get the fundamental service right, mm-hmm. so in the Eurostyle experience, if the train is late or it's cancelled, it doesn't matter how many pairs of sunglasses I give it's you. It's not going to help. Yeah. It's not going to make a blind bit of difference. Yeah. Um, and it's not as sexy to sort those sorts of things out but it's absolutely critical that you get it right because yeah. if you don't get the base layers and build your way up through this, you know, to make, right. So in software it is it, get it, get it to work. <laughs> if it doesn't work, it doesn't matter what it looks like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, whether it's easy to use, if I can't use it, yeah. so, you know, it, we, we would spend a lot of time looking at errors. So, putting in error handling to understand where the software wasn't working. So we got visibility of all of those errors Mm. Uh, because when I started at Eurostar, we would get visibility of the website errors through the contact center. That's a really good place to get some feedback when you don't have the error handling in the software, but it's a terrible customer experience because they're on there in the evening. They want to book their trip for their business trip the next day and the site lets them down and then it's on and it's a terrible customer experience and Eurostyle's rubbish. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's really important to get that that visibility of how it's performing, functioning, and then you can look at how to make it easy and then you can make it delightful and then you can start surprising people. But if you don't That's do it... That's a really that- good hierarchy. Um, <clears throat> and, and I like that because, like you say, people want to move straight to the sexy because it's sexy. All the time, every yeah. time people get excited about yeah yeah. but the <laughs> fundamentals have got to be right first um i yeah. like that this is a great we um i often talk about the opening experience at jersey uh, and with clients when i do coaching and um and what i mean by this is when you deliver a parcel to your customer or when dhl or whoever you've used to deliver that parcel the first time they hold that box is their first physical interaction with your business 
Everything up yeah. until that point has been pixels. Do you know what I mean? And now they're touching something and it's real and it's genuine and it's, you know, and it's in front of them. Um, and it's at that point, you, you've really got to pay attention to how that customer feels. Um, did it turn up late? Did it turn up on time? Is the box in bits? Was the courier rude to them? Do you know what I mean? These are the fundamentals, aren't they, which people just don't think about or talk about. Mm-hmm. But when they get hold of that box, how are they feeling? Do you know what I mean? And, and what's the emotions that they have? Because you can put all the sexy stuff inside the box that you like, but the fundamentals are, if, if this box is battered, the courier was rude and it's 14 days late and I've had to call 24 times just to get it. Yeah. There's an issue, isn't there? Yeah, and, and, and you'd have that. Uh, Moo, for example. So <clears throat> Moo, uh, Moo, we spend a lot of time, I don't, but the, the physical product guys, uh, getting the, when you open the box, that it makes that sort of sucking yeah. feel. Um, the Apple so the, yeah. iPhone box feel, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, um, so that it feels quality. But also a lot of time spent on um, time to manufacture so that when we're making a pros- pro- promise, um, that you can have your your business cards or marketing materials because often it's event driven. Mm. The reason you're buying it, if it turns up a day after that event, or even an hour after you have to leave, that's you know it's it's a fail, a complete yeah. fail. Or if it turns up with a spelling mistake or whatever, um, then that's a complete fail. Um, and so we have the move promise that if you're not satisfied in any way even if it's a mistake that you've made mm. that we'll reprint it free of charge mm. <clears throat> to deliver on that experience as, as best we can but also we we spend a lot of time looking at couriers and making sure that the couriers can fulfill the time that we're talking about yeah. uh, every time so that they can actually that the product gets the to the to the customer when when they need it um, and and that's I think why you know uh, you used to do this a lot at Eurostar, but at Moo is just as important. Any e-commerce business is just as important. Is think about the products that you're selling, and also the context in which they're going to be used. Yeah. And that's where design, the interest in design thinking comes from. Is you need to understand the context of how it's being used and the purpose your customer is going to use it for to make sure that it's a good product mm-hmm. and that it's packaged right and, and what's important to to them. Yeah. Um, and often you'll find with a premium product that people will be um, prepared to wait or there's some sort of part of your proposition. I can remember listening to, was it Gerald Ratner? who yeah. used to run Ratner's The Jewelers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> he had a new business venture. Um, and basically what it was is he had selling through television, um, but really cheap. So they, they, they sort of those advertorial type things. Um but it would really be really, really cheap, cheaper than you can get in the high street. But the trade-off was it would take you two or three weeks to receive it. Um, and so what he'd understood is there was a segment of the market that was prepared to wait to have cheap. a certain quality but cheap. Um, and he said the, the guys in the in the factory would literally be seeing, watching the show as well to make sure so they knew what they were about to manufacture. <laughs> <laughs> But also changed the business model as well yeah. because they only they didn't have any stock, so they only that what that allowed them and and um, that's why they could do it cheaper because they didn't actually have to have the stock. That's where made.com the way that they worked is they would only um, fulfill an order once they'd actually got a container full of of purchases already happening, and yeah. the trade off was you could get really well designed furniture 
but it was a fraction of a price. That was the origins of, of yeah. made. Yeah, it's a clever way of doing it, a clever way of thinking. It's, um, and yeah. it's an interesting model because people will wait. Um, yeah. There's no doubt about it. People will wait. Yeah. Well, okay. So um, one of the, we were laughing about this beforehand, uh, Neil, and we've got to that stage in my notes where it says other toilet example. <laughs> 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 and we were both going what do we mean by from from our original conversation what did we mean by other toilet example do you want to talk about that um i think yeah, you do I, now because everyone who's listening to the show yeah. watching is going what are they talking about Toilets? i'm so glad I caught up just before we got <laughs> <laughs> well, otherwise i'm going oh, i've got no idea yeah um so this comes back so there's and this, this is so when I was at Eurostar, the, the digital strategy that we were devising was not just e-commerce of how can you sell the tickets and how do you expand reach and how do you make the online purchasing experience or you know retention or ticket issuing experience foolproof, but it blended into the, the what I would call the real world. So when you're in the station and you arrive and you've your battery on your mobile's gone flat or you've forgotten your ticket or the train's been cancelled and how do you how could technology help? with that um and so when you're working on that kind of strategy the best way that i've come up to come up with that kind of strategy whether it's an overall customer experience strategy or a digital strategy or the blending of the two is something called design thinking or human-centered design which is um one of the i think one of the great thought leaders around this is a company called ido ido ideo um, and they do some really accessible, you know, quite reasonably priced, priced online courses. Mm-hmm. And what they look at is um, a series of very cheap techniques, if you do it yourself, mm-hmm. um, to try and understand how people use your product or service and how you can improve it. Um, and the design thinking is you go through and you look at how people use um, the service. It's not a great example for toilets because that would be a bit but it, it it sort of talks about we were talking about the difference between uh, men's toilets where there's rarely a queue mm-hmm. and women's toilets where there's often a queue yeah and i'm reading a book which was about um sort of data biases and and the ne- and the invisible influence that has on gender bias particularly towards women yeah. and they used an example of toilets so when you think about how to design a building with a toilet facility for men and women, you think, okay, roughly 50-50 population split. So we're expecting a similar volume of men and women. So we'll give them the same square footage for um, for a toilet. Yeah, equal size toilets. And that's fair, except for the ergonomics of the male body and the ergonomics of the female body are different. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can actually... Uh, you can use the toilet as a man quite easily standing up for for men. <laughs> I'm trying to politely say yeah, we're this. trying to trying to trying to dance around in case there's kids listening in the car. What's he yeah. talking about, man? I don't. What's he talking about? I don't know. But the point is, you can get um, more facilities per square foot for a man yep. in the general way that they use a toilet than you can for a woman. Yep. But also, other things that unseen bias around the data is that often women will be the primary carer, whether it's for an elderly person or for a child who will be there with them. Um, so you can't get 
you can get urinals in with cubicles for men in women's toilets it's generally i haven't spent a lot of time in them but generally it's, it's all cubicles but often they will have a dependent with them which means that it, it takes longer so therefore the dwell time in the toilet is longer therefore well, the same square footage isn't sufficient therefore you get cues yeah and you only get this insight by actually walking the walk and using the experience in the same way. And it's something the Japanese used in Gemba walks was where you get, um, so in manufacturing in the 50s, one of the ideas they had was get get the execs down and actually get them to um, to experience the, the manufacturing floor to see yeah. how it works. And Sainsbury's, I think, do this every Christmas. Yeah, they to help and then you see the problems firsthand and you get a lot more empathy for them um and then you actually sort them out rather yeah. than there's actually a whole bunch of tv shows about it now isn't it where they make the ceo of large companies go and work on the shop floor um, yeah or the factory floor and they and he, he understands his business in a very different way once he's done that yeah yeah uh, yeah well, it's an undercover boss i that's think is what well. yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the one i was thinking of yeah, yeah. So when i was a kid i used to watch with my dad this sounds really sad. I should have been out playing with cars or something or football. It's Sir John Harvey Jones, who was the chairman of ICI. Yeah. And he did a series called The Troubleshooter. And okay. I still remember it today. And he used to do that. And he went to Morgan Cars yeah. and just walked around and going, so why do you build the chassis on this side of the road, a public road, <laughs> and then stick it on a trailer and wheel it across a public road to the other side yeah. where you put <laughs> and all of these sorts of, yeah. It was like, just how we were that's, told to do it, but that's just... Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> And it intrigues me because, I mean, going back to the toilets is we still in modern 21st century Britain have this issue where, um, I mean, I was mentioning it to you, you know, we have a fairly new John Lewis building in Liverpool um, and the queues are always greater for the ladies' toilets than the men's toilets. And, and somehow we've we've not quite figured this out yet. We still create for ourselves the same problem because no one's taken this step back and thought, hang on a minute. Um we need to think about this differently or we need to look at this differently or we need a different type of response or we need to design this differently. Um, we'll use it and then yeah. you get the experience that your customer has um, and then you know how to improve it. And that's what the design thinking kind of process is, you know, interviewing and observing. So at Eurostar, we used, we used to get customers to do video diaries um, of their journey so we could see it firsthand. We would shadow the train managers mm. uh, trains and, and station staff when there was a disruption and this was probably where you learned the most when you know when you've had 15 trains cancelled on an Easter weekend, you'd get drafted in to help the star station staff deal with the fallout of that mm. and then you all right all right that IT system falls over when it volume or I can't reissue tickets from a third party. Um, and you get a completely different yeah. insight and genuinely improve the product or, or service that you're delivering. So in effect, what you're saying is, and because in my head I'm thinking this is this is great, but how does this apply for someone who's running an e-commerce business? You've got to actually get in the trenches, haven't you? You talk about shadowing your customers, talking to your customers. Yeah. Walk in the walk, have parcels delivered to yourself. What What, you know, it's that kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, so you, I mean, online you can. So there are some very expensive tools that you can use, which can capture, you know, every interaction on your website. So if you've got big budgets, you can go through and you can capture all of that that stuff, and you can almost play back the the, the sessions that people have had. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you're a big organization, then that's maybe worth investing if you've got the revenues coming through. There's actually do- a tool you can use that's that's free. 
um, that does the same thing called Hotjar. I don't know if you've come across that. Yeah, yeah, Hotjar. Yeah, same thing. Yeah, and and so um, you can earn. And when I used to start, I did this pre Euro style. First time I did this, it was all free and sort of ninety nine dollar tools that we used to use. Yeah. So screen. That's interesting. At Eurostar, a big, massive organization, you were using free and ninety-nine dollar tools to measure customer engagement. Uh, to to start off with, yeah, mm. because I had to prove a business case. No one was going to give me, you know, <laughs> tens of thousands of pounds to implement this thing that they didn't understand. So literally, we would use, and we still now use things like usertesting.com where you can recruit people to use your website, and they agree to. Um, be videoed and they'll give they'll do a dialogue as you do it and you learn so much through that and i've used that uh, everywhere that i've worked in e-commerce to see user where testing.com yeah user testing.com hot jar allows you to do it in a bit of scale and also google analytics so when i when we did the first replatforming eurostar we used a free version of google analytics mm-hmm. um because we had the expensive my predecessor had implemented the really really expensive top of top notch um solution but nobody understood how to get insight out of it right. so we flipped it on its head and said we'll have the absolute minimum and then when we find that we're meet, reaching the the limit of those features then we'll talk about whether we upgrade yeah uh, there's a guy called avanish kaushik who is, works for google as an evangelist or he used to in analytics and he said generally as a ratio of how much you spend on the analytics tool versus the analysts should be nine to one okay so if you don't have someone looking at the, the data, so whether that's your user testing, your yeah. session replay, or your analytics, if there's no one looking at it, you're probably wasting your money. Yeah. So start with the free tools and invest in the good people to actually get you the insight and find out where those friction points are. Um, that, and that's still every business that I've worked in in the last 15 years, I would say that has absolutely been the way that I've approached it. And we've, we've found some really good results. So what sort of things would you look for then in Google Analytics? What, what, so in what Google sort Analy- of things would throw out the warning signs? Um, so you can work out whether you start at the top of the funnel or the bottom. Mm. Um, and where I've tended to look at is at the bottom. So the people that have gone through the process that are committed, they've selected something, put something in their basket. And you're looking at that conversion funnel as where are the drop-offs? Mm-hmm. So the, the, the problem you're trying to solve is why don't I get 100%, 100% of the people to that, that, that bar elusive. Yeah. Yeah, and click to pay? And what you find out is, and then you do more user research and you understand more about your customers is, at the top of the funnel, not everyone's coming to buy. Mm-hmm. So sometimes they're going, right, is this a credible website? And you pass the brand kind of thing. So they're looking for um, recognition. And there's a great book on this. I think it's called Always Be Testing. Mm-hmm. Um, which talks a lot about how Amazon constructs web pages and the different personas that they they design their pages for, and it still seems to be in the architecture of their pages now. Mm-hmm. You've got different users coming at different stages of their purchasing path with different needs and motivations. So the reason you can on an Amazon page see the product, the price, and press buy above the fold is for the people that know what they want to buy want to confirm the price and they want to get out there as quickly as possible yeah. and buy it. If you go down the page, the people that are researching and thinking about, is this the right product for me? Is this the right vendor for me? There's more and more detail the deeper you go down. Yep. 
we've all met the really detailed oriented people that will read a thousand reviews and they will compare 400 products and it's for those sorts of people yeah. so that they have the depth of information as well but you get out of the way that people that know what they want and they just want to buy it yeah and you make it uh, for them yeah so at the top of the funnel you have those people um, so are just researching and as you get for, you know, further into the process so at Eurostar we would have a lot of dropout when you start seeing the prices mm-hmm. um, and people right just initially when we did user testing and we did user research we found that people were just doing qualifying prices comparing us to flying yeah that was right, the cost of it yeah yeah is the trade-off for the you know city to city journey worth the premium and so you're right, and then you're, you're, you have a more realistic goal because you're not saying, I want to get everyone to buy. All I want them to do is be able to see the prices, and if, they're, if they are um, very price sensitive, make sure that the Tuesday morning is visible so that they can see there is a low price offish if they're willing to do the trade-off. Or that you, you can look, so we, we looked at developing a monthly view or a weekly view so you could see the different trends because, you know, tr- train companies, airlines, Hotels all yield up and down based yeah. on demand. So the longer you can look as a consumer, the more you can see if you're price sensitive when to buy yeah. and adapt. And there are some people, you know, if you're retired, for example, you might be flexible and on a budget, and it could still be that Eurostar or EasyJet or whatever is, is part of that. So the goal was show them the prices and make them. So this was, um, we used to use an online exit survey. Yeah. And you can do these really cheaply or free. And it was, why did you come here today? Were you successful? If not, why not? Yeah. So three you, great questions. Yeah. Three great questions. I've stolen them from Avanish Kaushik. Um, <laughs> but they Thank are. You. <laughs> and what it says is, what was your goal today? Mm-hmm. Were you successful? So you then have a micro conversion rate that you can say, did this page perform what it used yeah, to, it it should have done? Yeah. yeah. The third question is, if you didn't, you then get insight from those customers as to why. You right. can do something about that. Yeah. It's actionable insight. So, so you would you, do this when they left the website? Yeah. So with an exit survey, so you can do it in different ways. And you, there's lots of, is it going to stop them from doing what they're going to do? Are pop-up surveys yeah. annoying? But with the exit surveys, you can do it with a small sample. You know, you can say, do it for 1% or 2% of the traffic. Yeah. If you're a low volume site, you might have to update, you know, increase the volume and you just take the hit for a short period of time. Yeah. Um, and, or you can trigger it on movement of the mouse, the JavaScript triggered. If they're going up to switch tabs or close the browser, you can trigger it then. Yeah. And it, you can gather over a period of time quite a lot of insight into where your site isn't doing what your customers want them to do to get them to the next stage of the purchasing journey. And you end up with these micro conversions, which you then understand what is the, per- what do I need this landing page to do? Yep. Why are people coming here? And there might be 15 different reasons and you can start getting volume metrics of the reasons of why people are coming. So you can prioritize which ones to do first. Um, and you say, right, the purpose of this landing page is to get them to the next stage or show them the price. Yeah. And it allows you to get lost, not get lost in things like bounce rate. So on a landing page, a bounce rate can be a good thing. Yeah. If people have got the information they wanted and they've left, yeah. they'll come back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you look at that through the funnel and then you look where the biggest problem areas are. And, you and did, you, um, did you incentivize people to fill out this exit survey? No. Because it just popped up. Do you mind as we ask you these three questions? Three questions. And would and you be- show all three questions at once or would you? 
do one question then another or just test it and see which one works best for you i would, I would test it i think there's from people that are far better at user research than i am i know there is a correlation between the length of a survey and the completion rate mm-hmm. just like there is with the length of a payment form as there is you know um so i would play around it and work with it but literally it takes you know seconds 30 seconds for someone to fill that out yeah uh, and be prepared. If your website isn't great, you will get abuse, death threats, and all those sorts of things that come. Well, apart your- from the death threats, you actually want all that information, don't you? Because that's what's going to help you improve yeah. and iterate, right? So, absolute gold. Um, and so we use that at different places. You know, used it in every that process in every business I've worked in. And what it helped us to do at Eurostar, probably the biggest win, was to find find out so the, the what. You can target it as well in different parts of the site. So the first bit, you asked me, how did you use Google Analytics? The first thing, we looked at that funnel. And we said, right, where do we want to improve? So if we saw, uh, I don't know, a 25% progression from stage one of the process to stage two, how can we get that to 30? Um, You know, that's that's a big drop-off. So how can we improve that? And then you do an exit survey just on that part of the site. Yeah. I understand that. And what we found is there was a big drop off on the payment page. Um, so the previous business I was at, all of the extras, it was actually filling out the payment details. So there was a tool that we use, and I don't know if Hotjar does this, where you could actually look at a micro funnel of the payment page. So how many people completed fields one, two, three, four. Okay. Yep. Page. So you then can say, right, actually the sticking point I think was around the address field. And the problem was that actually we didn't have a postcode lookup that worked properly for all geographies. Mm. So what Google Analytics allows you to see is where the anomalies are. The quantitative allows you where the anomalies are. So are we seeing a drop-off? So we saw a big drop-off from memory. It was in Germany. Okay. So the booking process was working wonderfully for everybody else globally, but not in Germany. So you then narrow down that field of focus and you look into Germany and it was, we didn't have the right payment methods for Germany. Um, simple as that. Simple as that. So they, they didn't, at the time there was a culture where credit cards weren't loved in Germany Mm -hmm. and they might shrift and other sort of payment types. So we needed to implement that to see it, see an uplift. We also managed to identify that there was a big drop-off between pressing the button pay and actually the transaction going through successfully. Um, and that was more looking at working with payment service providers, looking at our um, fraud rating um, and how successful we were at putting through legitimate um, uh, transactions and those sorts of things. So it's, it's using the quant to look at things that look wrong mm. and then using the qualitative to understand why. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So coming back to the product director, what do they do? Is the what and the why? Yeah. And you use the quant and the qual in combination to, to a lot of data by the sounds of it. And yeah. one of the um, one of the examples, um, one of the examples you gave in our pre-call, which I thought was fascinating, was uh, and maybe you could just expand on this a little bit, was um, how you talked about on Eurostar where you. When you booked the ticket, you had the train displayed in a certain direction. Yeah. But then when okay. you flipped it around. Seen the thing. I'll be back in a sec. Are you just gonna you're gonna stop that halo effect? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for those listening to the podcast, um, it looked like uh <laughs> it looked like you were getting raptured. Uh, 
<laughs> this sort of this light <laughs> shone behind him all of a sudden. Yeah, it's the um, Yeah, so yeah, so um, Eurostar seat map. Yes. So yeah, that was uh, I suppose the the, the theory of um, going through the customer experience and living it yourself. Um, so I was on a train coming back from Paris. Um, and occasionally they let us go in business class, which I was very grateful for. Um, and I was sat Is there on the train. business class on Eurostar a lot better than normal class? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just to yeah. clarify. You get the, the sort of waiter service and the, uh, you know, the free drinks and, and food and that sort of stuff. Okay. Um, so, yeah, and bigger seats and, and that stuff. Um, so, yeah, I was sat on, on there and... I, what I noticed is everybody else in the carriage was facing backwards, and I couldn't quite work out why. Because in when business, you say facing backwards, as in backwards to travel, yes, backwards to travel. Um, and I was facing forwards, and I I just couldn't work it out. And then in business class, often it's not at full capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, so as the train started to depart, pretty much everybody in the carriage stood up, turned around, and sat in the seat opposite. <laughs> So you're like, why didn't you just book that seat in the first place? Exactly. Um, and, you know, if you're a train manager, I spoke to the train manager and said, does this happen often? They're like, yeah, <laughs> every day. Um, and it was kind of a communication breakdown. Is One is from a, from a train manager's point of view, it's inconsequential. It doesn't matter. From a customer's point of view, it's irritating. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly for that group who may not book for themselves, they might have a PA or an assistant that books yeah. for them. Um, and the root cause, when you look through the organization, the root cause diagnosis was, was our online seat map. So we had the seat map, um, and we, the way that we found that was did more user research and spoke to people, did user testing of different prototypes, looked at other competitors and how they were doing it. And our seat map was horizontal because Eurostar is effectively a shuttle service, so the train goes back and forwards. It has yeah. an engine at the end, and it goes back and forth. So logically, internally within the business, you go, that makes sense. You have it like that. And yeah. it just goes like this. But for customers, they couldn't work out which end was London and which end was Paris. Yeah. So they book a seat and it would be facing backwards. And all a 50, we did, 50-50 chance of getting the one they wanted. Yeah. <laughs> and all we did is we made it vertical. Yeah. Because in people's mental models, up is forward. Mm-hmm. And that fixed the problem. And it say it solved the problem just by reorientating it, and people could then comprehend which was forwards, which was backwards, and they knew which place to sort of yeah. their seats. Mm. I have yeah. noticed. I, I thought it was really clever when you were telling me about it because I I have noticed on the Virgin trains, although it's not a Virgin anymore, is it? Is it Avanti? Anyway, whoever it is, um, they actually draw an arrow saying direction of travel now on the yeah. seat maps. And we we tried all of those things <clears throat> because it was actually quite hard to re-engineer it. To make so it vertical. vertical, but the vertical actually gave you the better results. Well, yeah. So we tried. So people don't read, mm. Come on. especially on a website. <laughs> it's funny that, isn't it? No, they don't read. So you need a visual interface that's intuitive that fits with the way they interpret the world. Mm. So we tried having arrows. We tried having words. Uh, we tried having pop-ups. Um, you know, saying "Are you sure?" Um, none of it worked stick it horizontally and people intuitively knew how to use it. Yeah. And that for me is great product design when it's intuitively works and works smoothly. Yeah. That's great. 
That's a great example. Listen, Neil, I'm aware of time uh, and I appreciate you giving us so much of your time um, and uh, giving us all your insight. There's so much packed into what you said, so many uh, ideas, so many website references. And for those of you who want to know what they were, we will we will endeavor to put them in the show notes on the website at madmans.com. You'll be able to find them there. Uh, all the links that Neil mentioned to all the websites, we'll put them in the show notes. So do check them out at madmanson.com. Listen, Neil, how do people get hold of you if they want to reach out, connect to you? What's the best way to do that? Um, I'm on LinkedIn. It's probably the best way. Um, Neil Roberts, Moo. <laughs> I should pop up. <laughs> Just look for, for Neil at Moo and you'll find him. Yeah, pretty much. Um, uh, yeah, that's probably where I'm most active. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have a Twitter account, but it's very dusty. Um, and yeah, it's interesting spe- now, actually more and more people, when you say to them, you know, it's great. Thanks for the show. How do people get a hold of you? I would say now the default is everybody's given their LinkedIn details. I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, it's quite interesting. It's not Twitter. It's not really Instagram or Facebook. It's LinkedIn. Um, and as a, as a social media platform amongst business people, it seems to be growing quite rapidly at the moment. Yeah, and I think they're, they're doing some interesting stuff in the way that they're sort of evolving the product to make it easier to, to network. Yeah. Uh, and I think, yeah, it's, and, and also the, the learning platform, I think, is, is absolutely brilliant. It's mm. one of the best learning platforms um, that I've come across. The thought that they've gone in, so they bought, um, we partnered with them when they were Linda. Yeah, that's <clears> what I was going to say, they bought Linda, didn't they? bought Linda, but it's just the, the thought and the execution of where they construct the the content on there is really easy and digestible. It's, it's brilliant stuff. So I think they're awesome. Great. So check Neil out on linkedin.com forward slash Neil at Moo or whatever. You know, we'll put the links again in the show notes. But if you search for Neil Roberts at Moo, you will find him. Neil, thanks so much for your time, bud. It's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to talk to you. Uh, I really, really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. Enjoy it. Great. Thank you. So that was our conversation with Mr. Neil Roberts. And as he said, do connect with him on LinkedIn. I'm sure he'd love to connect with you, reach out to you. Um, Wasn't he super generous with his stories about Moo and Eurostar? And I always find it fascinating what the inner workings are and the ideologies that bigger companies have. I do not have 600 people working for me, but I love to hear about how the bigger companies do it because a lot of the time, do you know what? A lot of those principles still work for us, you know, in the smaller businesses and it's great. And just some of the stuff he was talking about in terms of improving the customer experience was just utter gold. So next time you're online booking a train ticket, you'll remember the horizontal, the vertical. Next time you're in a queue to use the restroom, the toilet, the bathroom, just you'll remember that conversation, right? And you can apply that to your own business in terms of where, where's the equivalent of the queue, the toilet queue for the ladies on my website? What, where is that happening? Because I, I can tell you this, it will be happening. And using things like Hotjar and analytics um, and customer surveys, customer focus, exit service, all those kind of things to find out, uh, you'll be amazed at what you can do and just put those principles into action. Now I'm doubt, I'm sort of not doubting I'm I reckon if you've heard this podcast you are going to want to hear it again because there's so much gold in there uh, and you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from if you want to watch the video recording uh, and see the actual video we will put it on YouTube it is also on Facebook and the links to all of those 
will be in uh, in the show notes on my website, mattedmondson.com. Just head on over to mattedmondson.com and you will find out to search for Neil. His podcast will come up. All that information is there. Or just head on over to youtube.com forward slash mattedmondson if you watch, watch, want to watch the videos. Um, and you'll see all those videos there as well. So thanks for listening. Uh, like I said, make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Do join us on Facebook Live. Hit the little notification button so you get the dings when we do go live. Sign up to the email list and we'll let you know whenever we're going to do a recording so you can be involved uh, and enjoy those conversations. Uh, it's great to be able to bring this content to you. Um, I'm so thankful for my sponsors. Thanks to you guys for watching and to listening and making this show possible so I get to talk to some really amazing people around the world and hear their stories all about e-commerce. Neil was no exception. So thank you so much. Uh, God bless you. Good night. And we will see you again real soon. You've been listening to the e-commerce podcast with Matt Edmondson. Join us next time for more interviews, tips and tools for building your business online.